The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. So, um, just to kind of start off, this talk was born out of kind of me wanting to know a little bit more about Bolshevik women. As a revolutionary woman, I feel like we talk a lot about the Russian Revolution, but Many of us in this room can probably name Kolontai and Krupskaya, and does anybody know any other famous Bolshevik women by name, other than the countless masses who we know who <laughs> participate in various things? That was exactly the situation I was in before I started doing research for this talk, and um, I basically, you know, I, I knew about the Women's Bureau that happened after 1917 that set up to collectivize women's labor and actually bring about the liberation of women in Russia, but in terms of all the things in between and some of the personal stories, I didn't know very much, so, um, and I also, I don't know if anybody's seen Eisenstein's movie October about the Russian Revolution, um, but I remember seeing it in college, and there's a striking scene where there are these, like, kind of brazen-looking women in furs smoking cigarettes with guns in the Winter Palace. So the other story I remember is like women were defending the Winter Palace of the Kerensky government during the revolution? Like what was that all about? So trying to kind of piece all these different kind of snapshots together into a cohesive narrative about some women Bolsheviks, the role they played in the revolutionary period, the history of the women's movement in Russia and all of that. Needless to say, that's like three novels worth of material. So what I've tried to do instead is what I'm going to do is go through kind of a timeline of some important things that involved women, um, both the period before the 1900s and then um, the revolutionary period from 1905 to 1917, some important things that happened um, in the revolution and specifically that women were involved in. And then I'm going to highlight three Bolshevik women and kind of tell their stories as a way to kind of give a snapshot as... You know, there were certainly more than three Bolshevik women in the party, but to kind of um, paint some different portraits of the kind of women who were active revolutionaries at this time, the things that they did, the challenges they faced, and the accomplishments that they made. Um, I also brought, I wasn't allowed to have PowerPoint because the hotel was basically charging us an exorbitant amount. So what I've done instead is put pictures on... Um, cardstock of some some of the women I'm going to be talking about. I tried to find a variety of pictures of them, and then um, a few pictures of women demonstrating, and a couple of political cartoons and things like that. So I'll pass these around. People can look at them to kind of put some faces to the story. Okay, so I want to start off by going through a little bit of the historical context of women in Russia at this time, and I want to actually start off in the 1870s because there was a major shift in the attitude in Russia towards women and the women's question. Um, there was a rise of nihilism, feminism, and Marxism during this time, and it marked the beginning of real discussions of what would, what is a woman's role in the family? What is their role in the workplace? What is the role of peasant women? Um, and it kind of opened up this larger discussion about women as um, separate entities. The feminist main aims in this early period were to win higher education rights for women, which we shouldn't downplay. It was actually a really important victory that they won in Russia, and it actually paved the way for a lot of Bolshevik women to become educated and to become Bolsheviks. Um, but they kind of had these narrow focus on um, winning reforms for women, particularly around higher education. Um, other than that, feminist women kind of sought to bring women together in loose circles 
principles, discuss social ills, and do charity work. Um, the feminists of this period were mostly bourgeoisie and upper-class women who had a lot of leisure time and were trying to better society. And I'm not saying that to like poo-poo them, because they actually did significant work, but it was a very small group of women who had leisure time and felt like they wanted to do on behalf of others. Um, they did um, pressure the government to grant limited higher education for women, mostly because the government knew public opinion supported it, and this was a key thing. They were afraid to send women abroad to schools because in Europe the same thing was happening as in Russia, which was kind of a mass radicalization, and women who were going abroad to college and get higher education were coming back with socialist ideas. And so they're like, we need to actually develop our own system of higher education so that we stop sending women abroad and having them come back. Everybody who's oppressed should no longer be oppressed. Um, this was what distinguished them from both the feminists and the Marxists who believed you needed to organize one group of oppressed people um, more aggressively in order to obtain, uh, obtain real change. Um, feminists thought that you needed to organize women in order to obtain women's liberation, and Marxists, we'll talk about more later, obviously thought you needed to organize the working class. Um, the nihilists did want to change the world, not just pieces of it, but not necessarily through political action. So they're kind of this loose grouping of people who had radical ideas. And the reason I mention them is that they did actually have a strong impact on many radical women who later became socialists. They initially were brought into politics by reading um, you know, nihilist theory and thinking about equality in general, and then they refined their views um, into more socialist ideas. Um, I'm going to discuss later the rise of Marxist organizing in more detail, obviously, as I go into the talk. Um, but it should be noted that in this period, in the 1870s to 1900, people had started reading Marx in Russia. People were talking about socialist ideas. Um, and it did, you know, reading Marx and Engels did have a, a big influence, not just on women, but at men, um, Russian men at this time as well. So another important thing that happened in the 1870s was the victory for women's higher education. Um, there was, a, for example, the opening of university courses for women called the Beshtusev Beshtushev courses. What's interesting is the reason I mention them by name is that pretty much with the exception of Kolontai, all of the prominent Bolshevik women went to this one university. So you can, I mean, we're talking about some of the, the socialist movement was built in these small places where people came together and, and um, talked about radical politics. It actually was located on the seal. Vysilevsky Island, which was outside of St. Petersburg, so you can imagine all these women going to these college courses on this island in these little dormitories, like having conversation about radical politics, and you get a sense for kind of how the beginnings of um, the revolutionary women's movement was built. Um, it created a small but radical female intelligentsia class in St. Petersburg, and its graduates would have a profound impact on the events of the next century. Like literally dozens of women who came from that one university ended up becoming prominent leaders in the Russian Revolution. Um, another thing that was happening in the late 1800s in um, Russia was that women were migrating into cities. And this was a really important trend that led to um, women becoming radical and getting organized. In fact, in 1871, unattached females in Moscow outnumbered males in every class except for the merchant class. So that's kind of a that kind of blew my mind when I read that statistic because you're like, but unattached women 
unattached men, pretty much, you know, unattached women living in these small um, rooms, you know, five or six women in a room, and, um, you know, working in factories, working in textile mills, working in laundries, but coming to the city to escape basically the hellish life that peasant women were facing at that time, and as would later take on. Women worked just as hard and in just as horrible conditions as men, but received much less pay. Educated women worked in fields like bookkeeping, teaching, and telegraphy, and crowded into small flats with other women looking for a different kind of life. So these trends and ideas would set the stage for the revolutionary period that was to come. So that's kind of the backstory. That takes us up to about 1900. And now I want to go through kind of a timetable of what I'm calling the revolutionary period, basically 1905 to the Civil War. So um, one thing to, to note is that in 1900, um, Krupskaya writes and publishes the Woman Worker Pamphlet as part of the Bolshevik project to recruit women workers and compete with the feminists on the question of women's liberation. And it's like a 28-page pamphlet. It's not this enormous book, but it's really the first kind of publication that the Bolsheviks make that specifically addresses women's issues. Um, and so it's an important kind of, a lot of women in the party read it. It was passed around um, at a lot of workplaces, and it kind of became this beginning seed of the Bolshevik project around recruiting women workers. Um, and now I want to skip to 1905. This was a year that drew many women into struggle and swelled the ranks of revolutionary organizations. As part of the reaction to the massacre of peaceful demonstrators on Bloody Sunday, which was January 9th, many women workers were elected by their factories to the commission assembled to investigate the event. There was kind of this weird sexism that like, somehow women would be more clear-headed about investigating what had happened, and so a lot of factories actually elected women to represent them on this commission that was the official government investigation of what, of what had happened. When the government, however, refused to elect these women, they show up to, this, to you know, this government meeting, and they're told they can't be part of the commission because they're women, and, and then they take to the streets. Um, the ensuing strikes, demonstrations, and elections to the Soviet drew many more women and men into political activity. Um, even female cooks took part in the organizing in 1905, and when they her were harassed by the police, they retreated into female-only bathhouses and met in the nude in order to keep the police out of their meetings. So women not only... <laughs> I love that little story. And it's like, wow, how could we use that today? Like running into the women's restroom. But this idea that like there were these you know mobs of women running around, and when the police would harass them, they'd run into the female-only nude bathhouses and continue their agitation and, and discussion. Um, in Ivano Vinosnik, 11,000 female textile workers went on strike in one of the largest strikes of the period. So 11,000 women workers in 1905 went on strike. Women emerged as leaders in the streets and in the movements, and this marked the year when leaders like Alexander Kolontai, for example, would begin to devote themselves to recruiting working class women to the revolutionary movement. So 1905 was really the year where people were like, uh, guess what? Women are part of the revolutionary movement too and we need to have a serious plan about how we're recruiting women workers into this movement. The social democrat forces, both Bolshevik and Menshevik, began a serious propaganda campaign aimed at recruiting women to socialism ideology that's out there. So there began kind of this theoretical campaign around countering the feminist movement. 
Unfortunately, in the years to follow, many women, women revolutionaries, like their male counterparts, were driven into exile, were um, forced into work camps or prisons in Siberia um, because of the roles that they played in 1905. So there's actually this kind of period of time between 1905 and you know, 1912, 1914, where a lot of the leading women activists were either in prison or in exile, just like um, we know many of the Bolshevik leaders faced the same fate. So, you know, organizing was a little more sporadic. And I'll actually talk about one of the women who helped organize in the underground movement during this period and the kind of challenges that they faced um, later on. So in 1912, the Bolshevik Party launches the journal Ravnitsa, which seeks to organize women workers and workers' wives by highlighting stories about women's struggles and theories specifically related to the issue of women's oppression. It's launched in 1912. It doesn't publish its first issue until 1914, and then it only publishes two issues, and then it's because of um, what's happening with the Bolshevik Party in the war. It ends up not being published again until 1917. But it is a significant, I mean, I put it on here because it's a significant milestone that the Bolsheviks actually create um, a working-class journal specifically for women. Um, in 1913, the first International Women's Day is celebrated in Russia. Kolontai gives the first of many publicly acclaimed speeches about the women worker and how hers and the revolutionary socialist and working gives the conference in 1913 where she basically harangues the feminists who, by the way, are like the majority of people in the room. So like she stands up to speak and is being heckled by these feminists and is basically like, you're betraying women workers and just lays it out. So I, I'm not going to read it to you, but I highly recommend it's one of my favorite speeches. And, you know, getting a book of, of Kolontai's speeches and writings is like kind of an essential reading for if you, this is a topic that interests you. All right, so in 1914, World War I breaks out, and the feminists lead the charge to support the Russian motherland. Um, they even go so far as to recruit women soldiers and support staff into the women, what they're ca they call the women's death battalions to show that women can just be as patriotic as men and go to the front and woohoo. And this is that, back to that movie October, these were the women who are like so grossly portrayed in that movie, the like women with guns and like marching in the streets and the, I mean they were literally called the death battalions. Um, so the revolutionary socialist movement instead condemns the war, um, and it's split uh, in Russia. Sorry, let me read instead of trying to add them. The revolutionary socialist movement in Russia and abroad is split on the question of the war and support for their native countries. As men leave for war, women take their places in industrial factories. In Petrograd, between 1914 and 1917, women workers constituted one-third of the total. Um, in January, Petrograd is starving. Crowds of women began breaking into stores to steal bread. So, I mean, I know some people may know this, like really the revolution in February of 1917 was started kind of by International Women's Day organizing activities and also bread riots that were led by women. Like women were tired of waiting in line in the cold for two pounds of flour for an entire week and they started breaking into stores to steal bread. And so the kind of initial fervor of the February revolution was actually started by angry women um, in the streets of Petrograd. 
The February 23rd revolution overthrows Tsar Nicholas II, and it's sparked by actions on International Women's Day in Petrograd, and bread riots led by women tired of waiting in line for bread. Thousands of textile workers, mostly women, walk out and lead thousands more into the streets demanding bread and an end to the war. The Soviets share power with the provisional government, and the government is forced to give women the right to vote. So shortly after February 23rd, the provisional government actually gives women the right to vote. Russia becomes the first major country in the world to give women the right to vote. So if you didn't know that, there's a good little trivia question for all of those people who think Russia is the backwards country. They got the vote, you know, many years before women in the United States. The October Revolution in 1917 throws out the provisional government and all powers given to the Soviets. The Bolsheviks set about the project of creating a new worker state. One of their first laws was the 1918 Code on Marriage and the Family and Guardianship, which um, legalized divorce. There were later laws that um, granted paid maternity leave. Hello, I wish we had that today set about removing barriers that had previously been in place to women's liberation. Um, and then I want to close by just saying a little bit about the Civil War. Um, the worker state is immediately besieged by international armies collectively called the White Army. The Red Army, led by Leon Trotsky and organized by the Bolsheviks to defend the revolution, actively recruits women to its ranks from soldiers, support staff, and even commissars. I'm going to talk about one of the female commissars in the, in the Red Army in a minute. Um, and women also play a crucial role in industry during the war years. In some cities, um, as much as 50% of the industrialized workforce during the Civil War is women. So just to kind of give a snapshot historically of some of what was going on during this period. So now I want to actually talk about three specific Bolshevik women. And the reason I chose them was not because they are the most heroic or the most unique. Or, but, but basically, I think they paint three very different pictures of kind of what it was like to be a Bolshevik woman. Because just like we look at you know, revolutionary leaders and, and we don't try to have this cookie-cutter vision of what a revolutionary leader is. I think with women, we want to do the same thing with women leaders and tell their stories. What made them revolutionaries? What, would, what was their life like? Um, there are certainly some things that they have in common, but there are also some significant differences. Um, and they did win some significant victories, but they also faced a lot of challenges. Um, so I want to talk about Anessa Armand, um, Rosalia Zemalaika, I'm hoping I'm saying her name right. Women are born is not just to be like a book report, but actually a lot of these women were in their 50s during the 1917 revolution. And for those of us in this room that may not seem very old, but you can imagine like people who lived through decades of repression, who spent time in Siberia, and then were like 50 years old leading riots in the streets in 1917, you can imagine that like... It was a pretty significant thing for them to still be fighting at that point. And unfortunately, many of them died shortly after the revolution. And, you know, it's, a, it's partly why there's a bit of a vacuum in women's leadership. And Kolontai is really one of the people who continues on after 1917 to be a real leader in the party. Um, so she was born in 1874 and grew up in a family of wealthy textile manufacturers in Moscow after being born in Paris and orphaned. So her name sounds French. It was because she was actually born in France, but very quickly um, was sent to live with relatives in Moscow. A defining moment in her life was when, at the age of 15, she was reading War and Peace and came across the part about Natasha becoming fully feminine after she got married. So this idea that, like, I fully became a woman only after I got married. 
Anessa, who preferred to be called by her first name as a revolutionary, so I'm going to call her by her first name in this talk, recalled later in her memoirs that she decided then and there never to be fully feminine, <laughs> but instead to remain simply a person. At the age of 19, she did actually marry, so she wasn't anti-men. She did actually marry um, Alexander Armand, the son of a wealthy Russian textile manufacturer, and they opened a school for peasant children together. Like Alexander Kolontai, Anessa later separated from her husband. That's one trend that a lot of the Bolshevik women have in common. And she abandoned the traditional roles that she had so opposed as a young girl. In fact, over 20% of all active Bolshevik women in the early 1900s were separated from their husbands at a time when divorce was actually illegal in Russia. So a good fifth of the Bolshevik women just left their husbands. One of Anessa's crusades as a young woman was to do advocacy work for the prostitutes in Moscow. She became a fully-fledged revolutionary only after years of studying Marx and Engels and reading books like August Bevel's Women Under Socialism. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of that book, but it was actually a book that was cited by a lot of Bolshevik women as a book that inspired them into this vision of a kind of socialist world where women and men were equal. The stirring utopian vision of living in a world where women's work would be handled by communal institutions and boys and girls would be raised without sexist ideas and traditional gender roles led many women to become active revolutionaries fighting for that kind of vision. Sadly, until 1900 with the publishing of Krupskaya as the Women Worker, there were no party materials specifically about the role of women fighting for their own liberation and the practical implications of women revolutionaries available in Russia. So there was this kind of like vision of what the future could be, but there wasn't a lot of like theory to get from here to there um, until The Woman Worker was published. In 1903, Anessa joined the illegal Social Democratic Labor Party. Anessa distributed illegal propaganda, and after being arrested in June of 1907, she was sentenced to two years internal exile in Metzen in northern Russia, which in 11, Armand became secretary for the Committee of Foreign Organizations, which was kind of like the... Um, group of exiled revolutionaries um, that was established to coordinate all Bolshevik groups that were living in Western Europe. This would become a constant struggle in the Bolshevik party as many leading women members were given secretarial positions. So notice it said secretary for the committee. A lot of women were actually, if you look through the, the Bolshevik history, a lot of the women were like secretary for this commission, secretary for the, you know, the secretarial roles um, and they weren't given other leadership roles. Um, it would be a crusade for many women members as they demanded equal leadership in the party and earned it by convincing their male counterparts that they had the leadership chops to hold more political positions. Anessa was actually a bit of a pioneer in taking on sexism among comrades and refused to be silent on the issue of women's liberation both inside the party and outside the party. One of Vanessa's greatest accomplishments as a Bolshevik was to be on the original editorial board, along with Kolontai, of Rabinitsa, which was the party journal specifically targeted women that I talked about earlier, um, after her return from exile in 1912. The propaganda work of the paper became central to the work of the Bolsheviks in 1917. Anessa and her fe fellow Bolsheviki, which was, by the way, what they called themselves, was like the that female version of the Bolshevik, were absolutely dedicated to the revolutionary cause. They organized meetings, focused the work, and helped in developing the revolution. 
Each factory had its own representatives on the editorial board of Rabinitsa, and there were weekly meetings where all would participate and review the reports received from different areas. So you can see this not just as like a propaganda tool, but actually as an organizing tool used as an instrument to raise the level of understanding in both trade union and political structures, which were still lagging behind the consciousness of the masses toward a better understanding of the role of women workers. In March 1917, the Bolsheviks created a bureau to promote revolutionary work among women workers, and thanks to the perseverance of the women comrades who helped organize it, they managed to involve the party in calling for a Congress for all women workers to discuss the best way to involve and organize women in revolutionary struggles. So this happened in March. Guess when the conference was scheduled for? November of 1917. So something kind of important happened between when they planned it and when it actually happened. But it was a big deal for them to actually win support from the party in calling for this all-women's Congress. Um, so the Congress actually did take place in mid-November of 1917, after the October Revolution. Um, it sought to win women to the cause of Soviet power and to come up with ideas for liberating women from the domestic slavery of household labor. Anessa and other organizers had prepared for about 300 delegates to show up, and over 1,000 came. They were packed to the rafters. Out of this conference, the Bolsheviks created a formal central commission for agitation and propaganda among women workers. Anessa would be the first leader of this commission, which in 1919 became known as the Janatel. I think I'm saying it correctly, or women's section of the party. Several leading female cadre declined to play a leadership role initially in the Zanatel since they felt that gender actually had a pretty strong position about not wanting to do women-specific work. Um, so Anessa actually advocated strongly for the importance of collectivizing women's domestic labor and did not feel like this was a side issue, but rather a central issue to the new state and something that needed to be addressed if women were actually going to truly be liberated. This speaks to some of her background in organizing prostitutes and helping unionize laundry workers early in her political career. She never felt that organizing around women's issues was beneath her. She was a very strong advocate for practically winning li women's liberation. During the Civil War, Anessa used the Janatel to organize traveling agitprop trains and boats specifically aimed at getting peasant and working women on board with the cause of the Red Army. She also recruited women into the Red Army cause and got previously untrained women in the workplace to support the war effort. Anessa was known as someone who never slept and worked tirelessly. Sounds kind of familiar. Unfortunately, her exhaustion caught up with her. The party sent her to the Caucasus to rest, and she sadly died shortly thereafter of cholera in 1920. So, um, you know, she kind of exhausted herself in her work during the Civil War. But I wanted to speak about her because, to me, she's one of the early pioneers of the Bolshevik women, and she really paved the way for people like Kolontai, who were very much influenced by her leadership. Um, so now I want to talk about another woman, Rosalia Zemalaika. Has anybody ever heard of her? There's a great picture of her going around, of her as a young woman, and then one of her later on, where she's wearing her little glasses, and she looks really fierce. Um, <laughs> She was born in 1876, and she grew up in a liberal Jewish family in Belarus. She was came to be Bolsheviks, were actually brought up in families that had um, radical traditions. She was only five years old when she first helped her mother to hide radical pamphlets her brothers and sisters had printed. She also later saw her family harassed for their beliefs, and even more so because of their place as part of the Jewish minority. 
He, like many others, was taught at an early age to be critical of the Russian government and to actively work to change the status quo. So she was kind of brought up in a revolutionary household. Zemelika's career in the party started early. She became a party member in 1902 after her husband died and quickly developed a reputation as what was known as the Tverta Bolsheviki, which I will translate for you. A woman member who was tough as nails, uncompromising, and as fierce as any male party member. It kind of is a little bit of, I mean, I bring it up because it's mentioned a lot, and she actually owned it and took a lot of pride in it, but this kind of like... I'm a no-nonsense badass was basically this slang term. And she became quickly known as one of the women um, who were pretty badass in the party. Many male comrades called her tactless, but she never shied away. <laughs> she never shied away from leadership and making hard arguments, and she helped pave the way for future female leaders by setting the bar very high for them. Um, because of her fearlessness, she became an active leader of the underground movement. She was a member of the Central Committee with Lenin in 1903. That was something new that I learned. I didn't know there were any women on the Central Committee in 1903. She was one. And left shortly thereafter when Lenin suffered about of tuberculosis while in prison, and they let her out. Due to these health concerns, Zemelika left the country to recover in Switzerland and was unable to return to Russia until 1914. Um, I want to talk about Zemelika's most memorable role as a Bolshevik leader. It actually comes after the October Revolution of 1917, when she became a chief political officer in the Red Army. One of her first assignments was to organize the 13th Army, located in the contested territory of Ukraine. Upon arriving to her new post, she found drunken soldiers sleeping all over the floor of the schoolhouse that was serving as central command. She immediately roused the soldiers who could not tell if she was a man or a woman because of the way that she was dressed. And you can kind of see that in the picture that was going around of her. And she ordered them to clear out and sober up. And if they couldn't do either, if they couldn't sober up, then they needed to leave. The next day, she ordered the soldiers to clean up the mess they'd been living in and get to work. It is precisely this kind of no-nonsense behavior that earned her a reputation as a disciplined, uncompromising leader. Later in the war, she became the first female commissar in the Red Army and was sent to Crimea, which was on the Eastern Front, to shape up the lagging forces there who were, who were struggling under incompetent leadership um, and you know, massive attacks by the White Army. She also oversaw the execution of many White Army sympathizers and organizers, and she never flinched at, as, at her duty, a posture that earned her a fearful nickname among the White forces as that Bolshevik Amazon. <laughs> There's like literally things that are around, like the Bolshevik Amazon woman who executes whites. Like that, was, that was her nickname. So when she returned to Moscow in 19... Yeah, this is why I wanted to talk about her too, because not all Bolshevik women ended up on the right side after the revolution. Sadly, in the 1930s, Zimalaika became a Stalinist, and she put her skills, her toughness, um, her badassness to work in helping to oversee the trials of many of her comrades who fought with her in the revolution. She died in 1947, and her ashes were buried in the Kremlin Wall as an honor given to her by Stalin. Um, on a side note, there was another prominent woman, um, Red Army leader, named Evgenia Bosch, who... Um, is described by Victor Serge as one of the most capable military leaders of his time. Um, and she actually joined the left opposition. And it's also sad. She committed suicide in 1925 after um, Trotsky's faction was expelled from the party. So not all women 
went the same direction after the revolution. Um, and um, just like their male comrades, women took sides in the faction fight. So I want to end, um, oh my God, I'm going to end in five minutes, I'm sorry, with Alexander Kolontai. Um, so Alexander Kolontai was born in St. Petersburg in 1872. Her father was, an old was from an old Ukrainian family and he was a general and her mother was the daughter... Her mother was the daughter of a Finnish peasant. Her mother had actually obtained a special divorce in order to marry her father. So very early on, Kolontai's life was kind of um, colored by her view. In Europe, she read Marx and Engels and was introduced for the first time to the Communist Manifesto. Her parents, who were alarmed by the fact that she came back from Russia, now an educated Marxist, decided that she should get married, and they approved the marriage, <laughs> um, and decided marriage to Vladimir was the lesser of two evils. However, by 1897, Alexandra and Vladimir had separated, and her political career was in full swing. So, again, her parents were like, go to Europe and study, and came back a revolutionary. Kolontai first came around organized politics in the late 1890s, when she helped out a few hours a week with her sister Zenia in a library that supported Sunday classes for workers. She would sneak in these kind of like little socialist ideas to her lessons to the urban workers and she became known as a radical in these um, Sunday classes. Through this library, Kolontai met Elena Sastova, who is another famous Bolshevik woman, um, who is an activist in the budding Marxist movement in Petrograd. Sastova began to use Kolontai as a courier, transporting parcels of illegal writings to radical individuals around the city. Kolontai officially joined the Social Democrats in 1899 at the age of 27. In the years that followed, Kolontai studied economics in Zurich, met German revolutionaries Kautsky and Luxembourg, and wrote a book called The Life of the Finnish Worker, about the development of capitalism in Finland. Kolontai only really became an active leader on women's issues around the time of the revolutionary period of 1905. She felt strongly that the feminists had the upper hand only because no one was speaking out for working class demands, and she became a prominent public speaker. She constantly debated, and I will say harassed, feminists at women's conferences. When she was in the minority, she would stand up and denounce the feminists and harangue them. In 1908, after years of research and organizing in the textile factories, she wrote the social basis of the women's of the women question. She helped to organize the first Russian celebration of International Women's Day in 1913, and she worked on the board of Rabinitsa from 1912 to 1914. Kolontai was not a Bolshevik at this time, and she refused to take sides when the Bolshevik-Menshevik split happened, which some people may know. Um, she would become a supporter of Lenin and the Bolsheviks in 1914 with the outbreak of World War I. In addition to being a leading organizer around women's issues, Kolontai was one of the most vocal anti-war revolutionaries in 1914 to 1917. She was actually like probably the most anti-war speaker of the Bolshevik party, and she would give these um, really um, scathing critiques of the feminist movement and their support for the war effort. She gave numerous public speeches about the topic and countered vigorously the women's battalions being organized by the feminists. After the revolution in 1917, Kolontai with Anessa Armand organized the Women's Congress of 1917 and helped to set up the Women's Bureau of the Party. There is much more to say about Kolontai. There are entire books written about her. I recommend that you read them. Um, but I actually want to close with a little bit of insight into the significant, she role, the significant role she played around developing the theory of family and free love and sexual liberation because she was kind of on the very left wing of the party on a lot of these ideas. Um, 
So Leon Trotsky reflected developing a new family system in post-rug raised by the nuclear family. Um, to that end, she helped create communal kitchens, laundry, and child care centers to begin to relieve women of their domestic oppression at home. She also argued that traditional morality should be thrown out the window and that freedom for women also meant sexual freedom. Not just the freedom to divorce, the freedom to ag- have access to birth control and abortion, but the freedom to love who they wanted, when they wanted, and to not have to actually engage in monogamous relationships, which earned her some some frowns from other party members. She believed in free love and that the family would actually wither away under communism and that women and men would both work and children would be raised collectively Sorry, I'm with the support of the state. As such an outspoken leader around issues previously thought of as taboo, Kolontai ruffled the feathers of more conservative party members, but she continued to be an advocate for sexual liberation, gay liberation, and socialized domestic work for the rest of her life. Kolontai became the first female ambassador in the world when she became the ambassador to Norway in 1923, which was kind of, by the way, to get her out of Russia during some of the faction fight. They sent her to Norway to be the ambassador. was like, yes, you get to be the ambassador, but it was also kind of a tactic um, to get her out of of some of the faction fighting that had started. She survived the Stalinist purges and died of old age in 1952. Um, And I'll actually read the quote from her later in my closing, and I will stop there, but I'm sorry I went a little bit long. I'm very passionate about this topic, and I highly recommend that people read books about it. There's a vast amount of information that I wasn't able to cover, so if people have questions about things, um, I'm happy to to try to answer them. Thanks. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.